0: Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. We're here with a special guest, Dr. Brian Fickert, who is the founder and president of the Chalmers Center for Economic Development at Covenant College and Professor of Economics and Community Development at the same Covenant College. You may not be, You may not have connected the dots quite yet. You may be aware of Brian, but may not know why. And that's because of his best-selling book that he co-authored, entitled When Helping Hurts, How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor. A, a truly game-changing book, in my view. We'll come to that here in a little bit. What I'm interested in talking to Brian about today is the subject of his discipline of economics and the connection between that and human beings made in the image of God. I take it those; those aren't generally terms that people put together in the same sentence. We're going to talk not only— do that, but talk about it in depth. So, Brian, welcome. Great to have you with us. It's great to be with you today, Scott. Uh, now, let's, I think, for just to set some context for our listeners, uh, I I don't use the term global capitalism because Marx coined that term and it was intended pejoratively. So, I use the term global markets, market-based systems. But I think it's almost without dispute that over the last 30 years or so, maybe it could extend it to maybe the last 200, actually. But global markets have done an, an incredible amount of things to lift the poor out of poverty. Tell us a little bit more about what those market systems have, com- have accomplished to, to do this.
1: Yeah, if you view economic life in, in light of all human history, the reality of it is Uh, There wasn't a whole lot of progress until about 1820, right? And so people were kind of plodding along, and uh, uh, a significant number of people in the world were uh, enmeshed in material poverty. And the Industrial Revolution hits, and it takes off in uh, the West and kind of leaves the rest behind, right? And so markets and the institutions that support them uh, blossom in the West, uh, economic growth happens and uh, the West emerges as the, the winner in sort of this economic race, so to speak. And the process of globalization, of course, is a process of spreading many of the institutions that, that, uh, that foster economic exchange Uh, from the West to the rest of the world. And what we're seeing is, is that as the rest of the world adopts Western-style institutions, markets, and the behaviors that go along with them, that, in fact, economic growth does happen there as well. And uh, it lifts a a very large number of people out of material poverty. uh, if you look at the, the percentage of the world that is living below $1.90 per day, which is sort of the global poverty line, uh, that's plummeted. Uh, it's been reduced by about 50% over the past 30 years. And so, quite frankly, it's one of the most remarkable achievements in all of human history
0: to see Massive reductions in material poverty in just three decades. It's crazy when you think about it. So something like I've heard a billion to a billion and a half people have been lifted out of that grinding yeah, poverty. Absolutely amazing, and, and particularly, mm-hmm. it's, it's
1: unfortunately it's not spread evenly. It's very much centered in India, but uh, China in particular. An incredible story in those two places, and and so. We want to say that markets work pretty well at lifting the vast majority of people out of poverty. There's still plenty of poor people around, but, but the story of the market spreading growth is a great story.
0: But it's I take it it's it's not it, – maybe we say two two cheers for markets, yeah. not, not three. <laughs> That's
1: right. Because <laughs> it's, it's not all
0: good news. That's right. So what what do you mean – you cite the term the paradox of unhappy yeah. growth. What, yeah. what do you mean by that? Because why – why would growth be unhappy? Yeah, it's really crazy.
1: But um, uh, in the last 30 or 40 years, uh, a, a number of economists have started to notice that um, while economic growth continues in the West, in the United States in particular, uh, we don't see the self-reported happiness of the average American going up. And so we've got this paradox of uh Income per capita, average incomes going up and up and up, and yet the self-reported happiness of Americans hasn't gone up for a long period of time. If you look at about the last decade, it's actually declined. If you look at some uh, similar measures like mental illness... Uh, anxiety and depression. What we actually see is a steady increase in anxiety and depression in the United States from the 1930s to the present. And so it's sort of like we've got this increased uh, material prosperity, but there's something in us that's screaming out and saying, I'm not made for this. I'm made for something more. I'm made for something different. And so I think we've got to pay attention to those other voices, those other signals
0: coming from ourselves saying, not all is well here. Now, is this happening primarily in the West, or is this also taking place in the developing world as they experience you know, lifting yeah. g- a good number of their folks out of poverty? Yeah. So certainly we have less
1: data from the majority world of Africa, Asia, and Latin America, but some of the data that is coming out suggests a somewhat similar story, uh, rising material prosperity, but also increased uh, uh, anxiety, increased depression, increased loneliness, and um, not great increases in self-reported happiness. So, for example, there's one study uh, of China that suggests that, that the Chinese are actually, on average, less happy today than they were before uh, the explosion in economic growth. So, uh, it, it's a mixed bag. Now, the, I, I don't mm-hmm. want to take it too, <clears throat> folks, the, the data is complicated. Uh, questions about subjective well-being are, are very imprecise. This is a complicated set of issues. But what we are seeing, I think, is a fairly consistent story. And the story is this markets foster economic growth, but there's other things that seem to get lost in the process of economic growth that we don't want to lose. And that has to do with the wiring of human
0: beings for relationship. Okay, let's be a little more specific about okay. that because you, you know, th- these are some of the cl- clearly unintended yeah and maybe also unanticipated totally side effects yeah. of an otherwise really good thing yeah that's so it. let's 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 spell that out a little yeah. bit in a little bit more detail so, so
1: the way that mainstream economics uh, uh, thinks is as follows mainstream economics also called neoclassical economics believes that human beings can be described as homo economicus <laughs> and and the conception of the human being is as a purely material creature. We're just physical bodies. Uh, We are considered to be highly individualistic and completely self-centered. So if you're individualistic, self-centered, and materialistic in that story, happiness comes from more consumption, more consumption of material things. So the way to achieve that is economic growth. Economic growth raises our incomes. With higher incomes, we can buy more stuff. As you buy more stuff, we're happier. Well, what if the human being isn't fundamentally just a material creature? And so this gets into how you started um, our discussion today, this idea of image bearing. What does it mean to be an image bearer? And and, uh, there's so many uh, uh, debates about what the scriptures mean by that and different facets of that. But uh, one way that seems to be consistent with the biblical narrative is that as people created in the, as creatures made in the image of God, we are relational creatures from all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost exist in relationship with one another. And as beings made in the image of God, we are also relational creatures. We're not just bodies. We're bodies with highly integrated souls. And then on top of that, we're relational beings. So we're not bodies, we're body-soul relational things. And once you start to conceive of the human being that way, it changes our ideas of what human flourishing could look like or should look like. And it starts to suggest why the market forces alone, uh, might not be all we were hoping for because it seems like that story of homo economicus, that highly individualistic story, that materialistic story starts to take over and we start to become more materialistic. We start to become uh, less relational, and our personhood would scream out against that and say, I'm not made for
0: this. And so um, that's what we think is going on in the data in the story. And I hope our listeners, I, I want to encourage you, you might want to play back that last minute or two, because you just heard a superb biblical theological integration with economics. Uh, because, you know, the, the you, you heard Brian Critique his own discipline of economics, mm-hmm. saying that the fundamental way they look at a human being, you know, maybe it's not incorrect, but at best it's incomplete. Certainly
1: incomplete. You know, Scott, this is an area where um, I really think it's a good example of how we need theologians, uh, biblical scholars to interact with uh, those of us in other disciplines. Because the truth of the matter is, um, I've had to undo. Uh, a lot of the fundamental teaching that I... I have a PhD in stuff that I think is wrong, but but I didn't have the tools uh, to be able to interpret why it was wrong. And so God has brought into my life a number of theologians who've walked with me and helped me to see some things that I was missing. And so we need to get out of our silos, our disciplinary silos, a bit, and and interact with one another because we need each other. Well, right, and those and those conversations are incredibly rich. Oh, it's it's made uh, me it's it's been intellect. Sorry, for interrupting no, you, but I'm so excited. Yeah. It's been intellectually enriching, but also just uh, personally enriching because you see, part of me uh, is becoming like homo economicus. When you study something for so long mm-hmm. and you think it's true, that starts to affect you and it starts to deform you. And so I have had brothers and sisters come alongside
0: of me and help me grow spiritually as well as intellectually through this interchange. Well, and I suspect for many of our listeners, you know, <clears throat> they would think about economics like I think most of the culture does, is economics is just about facts. Totally. And it, it's, it's worldview neutral, it's value neutral, it's it's prices and supply and demand, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's just the way it is. But you're saying that's not true. Scott,
1: what you're describing is actually in the first pages of every introductory textbook in economics. You Still. Know, oh, yeah. So, so uh, the first chapter of every economics textbook talks about the positive normative distinction. Economists like to say that there are positive statements, there are statements of fact that everybody can agree on. Uh, the sky is blue, uh, the, the ocean is wet, and so statements are just, uh, just facts. And then there's other statements that are normative, statements that describe the way things should be or the way things ought to be. And those involve value judgments, uh, presuppositions, if you will, religious convictions. And the economist, when they're um, being consistent with their own discipline, will say that The Economist only engages in positive statements. We're simply describing the way things really are. And so um, uh, people from all religious backgrounds, people from uh, different genders, different cultures, can all agree on certain things, says The Economist. Well, one of those things that we're supposed to agree on is that human beings are highly individualistic, self-centered, materialistic creatures. That's just the way it is. that's not what the Bible says. So, uh, so
0: in other, if I could paraphrase, yeah. in other words, they don't have souls. No souls. They don't have communities. No communities. And they don't have relationships. That's it. And don't need them. That's it. And that's just the way it is. Well, a
1: funny thing happens. When you say to students over and over again, this is just the way it is. Research shows that the students actually start to become more like that because they think that's how they're supposed to be. And so if you study my discipline, it's actually
0: deforming. It actually starts to turn you into homo economicus. So interesting that the the facts themselves end up having a normative significance in in the lives of students. So the
1: entire paradigm doesn't work. Another fact that we're all supposed to agree upon is that we're supposed to serve homo economicus, that the goal of life is to make homo economicus happy. Well, I'm a pastor's kid. And, you know, every night I had to go through this ritual called the catechism. And dad would say, Brian, what is humanity's chief end or chief purpose? And if I'd said uh, to serve my own material self-interests, that wouldn't have been a good day for me at at, at the dinner table. I was supposed to say to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? And so um, uh, the, the discipline is founded on presuppositions that are simply unbiblical. It's not a neutral ground. And the economy is not neutral ground. It's a place... In which the, the the basic struggle between the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of darkness, are are uh, is taking place, just like it is in every other
0: dimension of the created order. Well, this is Brian. This is so helpful to to think integratively like this. So let's let's spell out a little bit more of the implications of, of human beings being made in the image of God. What does that mean for a person made in God's image to flourish? Oh, what does it mean? So so. I believe that the Bible teaches
1: that human beings are made, again, as highly integrated body-soul relational creatures who are hardwired, if you will, to live in deep communion with God, with ourselves, our self-image, with others, and with the rest of creation. That last one uh, I'll talk about more in a second. But there's been some recent theological work by uh, a scholar named Greg Beal who's uh, argued that the, the biblical imagery is that the Garden of Eden was actually a temple, a place where God and human beings dwelt together in community. Uh, it's actually the Holy of Holies, if you will, hmm. is the Garden of Eden. And so, so we're hardwired to dwell in God's presence and to dwell in deep community with other human beings, Adam and Eve together, Right. And then God gives us a task, it's, and the task is to uh, act as priest rulers who extend the reign and worship of God from the Garden Temple through all of creation. And so flourishing is to be what we're created to be. It's to, to be a priest ruler who lives in right relationship with God's self, others, and the rest of creation. That's a
0: different notion of flourishing than homo economicus, just get more stuff. But does that does that presume, sort of like Aristotle suggested, presume a certain level of prosperity? Oh, brother, they're not paying me enough to answer these questions.
1: <laughs>
0: so, so um,
1: y- you know, the, we're wired... Because you
0: know where I'm going with this. Well, you keep going. Well, because, you know, we've had, th- throughout most of the history of civilization until the last 200 years. You know, the vast majority of people lived in grinding right, $2 right, a day right, poverty. Right. I, I wouldn't want to say that, you know, most of the history of the church, they were not flourishing. Right. And, and we're called to flourish under persecution. <laughs> totally. So, so t- okay. T- okay. as an economist, there, oh, how does right. that fit? So,
1: so, so, there's all kinds of um, paradoxes here and, and things that, quite frankly, I don't know how to sort out. So, there are some uh, interesting things in scripture. So there's this idea in the Beatitudes that, that uh, persecution is a blessing, that we should, um, praise God when we're enduring hardship and trial. That's all true. But I don't think that the vision of the garden is a vision of suffering. I don't think it's a vision That's of right. persecution. That's it's right. a vision of wholeness, of shalom, of enjoyment. And the vision of the New Jerusalem is the restored Garden Temple, and so the image is of a great banquet feast. It's not an image of being chained to a prison guard in a Roman cell. And so <laughs> there's some paradox that I can't
0: ex- explain. But but uh, well, I got to tell you, I think our listeners are going to be very grateful to hear that. <laughs> otherwise, the, you know, the kingdom coming in its fullness got a lot less attractive. Yeah, yeah. who
1: wants to be you know, in jail for all eternity? And so the, the images of a banquet feast, of a great Communion, where there is plenty to eat, and in joyful celebration in God's presence, in the presence of uh, other people, and, and so it, 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 there's a paradox yeah. here that I'm not well, smart enough to sort out. Well, I think, <laughs> you, but, but you,
0: you've helped us get like a good bit of the okay. way there. I think because uh, I mean, I go back to Gen- Genesis one and mm-hmm. two, where you know the imperatives given to human beings right after they were created is to be fruitful which as you know, is, is a fundamentally mm-hmm. an economic term. We don't, mm-hmm. it's the be fruitful and multiply don't, are not supposed to go together. Mm-hmm. It's multiply and fill the earth yep. that go together. Be yep. fruitful, it stands on its own yep. and is vocationally and economically yeah. fruitful. And and the idea that you
1: would work and out of your uh, the work of your hands, you would get to reap the benefits of it, enjoy it, and so it wasn't work and starve; it was work and eat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and I think the the fact that we have bodies Mm -hmm. suggests Mm -hmm. that there's a physical component to Mm -hmm. our flourishing. Mm -hmm. We're not souls on a stick. Mm -hmm. That's uh, right. To speak of, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think there's you know God promised the Israelites, but a land. You know, overflowing with milk, milk and honey—that certainly mm-hmm. speaks of prosperity. Mm-hmm. Now I know you're you're sensitive to not buying into something to really bad theology that mm-hmm. suggests that you know God owes us mm-hmm. material prosperity as part of His covenant. That's the prosperity gospel, right. which right. we don't want anything to do with. That's right. Uh, which is where our, our theologians, I think, can mm-hmm. can really help us a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, I think the idea of shalom mm-hmm. being that, you know, I think you got that right—that that wholeness. Mm-hmm. And it is is a bodily mm-hmm. wholeness too, that uh, that impacts us. So, you you maintain that the, the way the way uh, the discipline of economics looks at a human being actually has the potential to de not mm-hmm. not to form us but to deform mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. spiritually speaking. How how so? Yeah.
1: So uh, you're an ethicist, and so you can probably help me with this but uh, I have found some help in the field of virtue ethics and this idea that we are shaped by stories. Uh, stories that give us a goal and a way of achieving that goal are embodied in communities. And as the community lives into that story, as it engages in practices, that sets up systems to achieve its goals, it shapes us. It makes us into different kind of creatures. Um, I like to give an example of a, of a basketball team. Right, well, this is a global audience. Let's talk about soccer or go. what they would call football around the world. And so, so think about that. There, there's a think of the soccer team as a community, and that community has a, a goal. The goal is to win the game, and how are you going to do it by scoring the most points? So that's the goal. And the, the team engages in practices. It practices dribbling. It practices mm-hmm. passing. It practices shooting. And over time, uh, those practices make the players better. Well, then the coach reinforces that story. He creates a system that rewards the players who do well and, and sort of humiliates the players who don't do as well. And so the players that do well get more playing time. They get the most valuable player trophy. The players that aren't so good end up at the end of the bench. Well, over time, as the team lives into that story, engages in those practices under that system, the team members change. They become the kinds of creatures that help the football team to win the game. And so when there's uh, 20 seconds left and, and, and the ball is passed to the, to the forward on the right, the forward doesn't have to think. He drives to the goal and he shoots on the goal because he's been conditioned in a certain way. And it's kind of like that. When we live into the story of homo economicus, we live into the story of more is better and I'm going to consumerism. Get consumerism. we live the story of consumerism, we practice consumerism in our, in our households. We practice consumerism in our workplaces. When the institutions, the systems the society, are set up to foster consumerism, it starts to make us into that kind of creature. We start to become like homo economicus. And there's an explosion of research that says the following: If you are an individualist and you're a consumeristic materialist, you're going to be miserable. These are not conditions that are conducive to human happiness and flourishing. Oh, There's a huge, there's a whole field called the science of happiness right now that's exploded. And the bottom line of that literature is individualistic materialism is bad. Relationships with God, self, others, and creation are good.
0: <laughs> so, so Brian, are there other economists who are oh, who yeah. are seeing this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, there's sort of a... What, uh, what happens to their hold on the, the orthodoxy of the discipline? Yeah, they're all un- unemployed right now. So, so <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm teaching at a Christian college for a reason, brother. <laughs> so, the, I think the field is facing a crisis because the, there's a, a growing amount of... Uh, of, of empirical evidence that, in fact, human beings aren't fundamentally solely physical creatures. And so there's a, uh, the foundations of the discipline are being shaken a bit. Uh, there's a new... F- uh, sort and, that's,
0: and that's becoming more and more recognized.
1: Yeah, but you, you, you can't quite say it publicly yes, yet, okay. but it's what's going oh, right. on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. so, for example, there's a... Um, the, 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 several Nobel laureates in economics in the past number of years are actually psychologists, which is really is irritating. Really irritating to us as economists. <laughs> but these are peop- these are these are psychologists who have worked at the intersection of psychology and economic behavior, and their research is showing that the Homo economicus story isn't accurate and it's not true, and that's opening the door for a whole bunch of research in a field that's now called behavioral economics, which is more like psychology. Instead of assuming rational, uh, uh, highly individualistic, materialistic behavior, it's more of an inductive approach that says, let's just do experiments and look at how people behave and try to figure out what's going on here. And so it's more inductive and less deductive. And um, it's far more, it's opening the door to more relational understandings of the human being, more relational approaches to economic life. There's actually a very well-known economist named Jeffrey Sachs who is promoting prosperity and growth. He wrote a book called The End of Poverty at one point. And he is now uh, the architect of something called the World Happiness Report. And instead of thinking of the the primary measure of happiness or of well-being being gross national product, they're now looking at something called gross national happiness. It's actually a set of holistic measures, all of them around relationships, and saying uh, this is what flourishing looks like. And you can actually measure some of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, you could, yes. the listeners today could all just go, just Google, or just go to a search engine and just type in gross national happiness. There's an annual report that they can download for free and they could see it. Very interesting. Uh, the country of um, Bhutan, a uh, Buddhist country, uh, has really pioneered this idea that flourishing is this kind of holistic relational thing. And they have, uh, as a matter of their public policy, they no longer calculate just gross national product. They have a very sophisticated system for measuring wholeness uh, in all of life. And the United Nations has actually recently adopted some of this. It's starting to grow.
0: Yeah, it, it makes me wish that uh, we instead of the intersection of psychology and economics, we would have the intersection, we'd have theological economics. We need it. Uh-huh. Because I think the, theologians have just as much to say as psychologists. Oh my word.
1: Yes, yeah. totally. Uh, you know, the history, is, is you know, Scott, of, of economists and theologians talking together hasn't been altogether positive. <laughs> there's, there's been a lot of conflict. The two groups kind of talk past each other. We've got to grow out of that. We need each
0: other. Yeah, my observation has been that uh, we're just we're just speaking two different languages, no, completely different, and uh, that there's there's misunderstandings of economics on the part of theologians okay. and misreading of the Bible on on behalf of, econ- of totally. economists. Totally,
1: the economists um, are notorious for reading into scripture <laughs> our our model of our worldview. We can find homo economicus in every page.
0: <laughs> let, me, let me go back uh-uh. to the to some of the stuff about markets. Yeah, for, for a moment, I've taught my students for a long time that. Uh, market marketplace activity both requires and nurtures uh, at least a modicum of virtue you know just to be able to function like truth telling for yep, example yep. and transparency and yep. um and i would much rather hire someone who's characterized by the fruit of the spirit mm-hmm. than the deeds of the flesh i don't <laughs> yes, i don't, I don't yes. think that's a tough call <laughs> yeah. um, what do you think of that mm-hmm. notion mm-hmm.
1: So there's a bit of a gap between um, the theory of mainstream economics, of neoclassic economics, and the real world. So uh, the theory is centered on the idea, again, that everybody is self-serving. There's no virtue. There's no love. There's no uh, truth-telling isn't an um, uh, inherently good thing. What's inherently good is getting more for yourself. Uh, now, the reality of it is, in, in self-interested models, over time, truth-telling becomes important because you're going to lose customers if you don't tell the truth over time. But but see, it's all from a perspective of self-interest. Yeah, it's, it's not yeah. truth. It's not honesty for its own virtuous sake. It's because I'm going to lose customers if they figure out eventually that I'm not telling the truth. And so the whole paradigm is not truth. It's not virtue. It's self-centeredness. Now... In the real world, uh, the truth of the matter is, if you don't have some degree of virtue, some degree of honesty, a whole lot goes wrong. So, um, uh, you know, I'm not very good at mechanics. And so I take my car to the auto mechanic. And the reality of it is, I don't know what's going on. And um, could he rip me off? You mean the video he shows you on the phone, that that doesn't help you? (laughs) I don't have a clue what's happening. So, um, now, could he be discovered over time? He could be. But the reality of it is... Um, I choose to go to an auto mechanic who's a member of my church because I trust him. And I don't know what's going on. I know he's not going to rip me off. And so that's an example of what you're talking about that sort of a baseline of truth and honesty sort of puts uh, uh, oil on the gears, so to speak. And and you have to have some of that or it's very difficult for
0: markets to work. Let me ask you one other, a couple other questions here. Um, You know, I I think both of us would recognize that Marxism as an economic system was sort of swept into the dustbin of history around, you know, the final broom brushes came in in 1989 when the yep. Berlin Wall fell. But why is it that s- so many today are embracing forms of socialism yeah. as a as a workable economic system? Is yeah. that is that a viable alternative? Yeah. And if not, well, yeah, why not? yeah, that's great. Great
1: question. So so. Um, You're hearing me in this podcast being both um, uh, praising markets, but also being concerned about markets. Um, I don't want anybody here to think that I'm arguing for some high degrees of centralized planning or government control. That's been a disaster. And and so that's not the solution. Um, Why are some people attracted to that? Uh, Well, uh, I think that's a complex story, but I, I think, to be honest with you, I think we've gotten a little lazy in our culture. And I, I think um, a, a lot of us are looking for a free ride, to be honest with you. And, and um, I mean, Scott, I don't know your story, but I had to work pretty hard to get where I am. And, and I worked in a factory and worked night shift in a factory for pretty low wages. Uh, to be honest with you, most of my students, who I think are great kids, not a single one has ever worked in a factory in their life. And they wouldn't. And so, so, so there, there, there's a uh, my view is there's a little bit of a presumption of of things
0: being a little easy. To be honest with you,
1: yeah. that, my, that's my dad
0: my dad owned the company. I didn't have a choice. You have know, a choice. Right?
1: <laughs> so, so, there's a little bit of entitlement going on for across socioeconomic lines here. It's not one group or one. I think the whole culture right now is, is got a little sense of entitlement. as part of it. I do think we are, I, the upside of it is I would say many of the younger generation are acting in far more relational ways than some of us baby boomers did, and so I think they're onto something. And they, they do have a sense of care, they do have a sense of community that I think is biblical, that I think I missed in my growing up years, to be honest with yeah. you. And so I think it's partly that. They're looking for a softer, gentler, so to speak, kind of culture and kind of uh, economic life. And so I think they've tapped into some truth there as well. It's very, it's
0: very encouraging yeah, to hear. Yeah, so. One, one last question, Brian. How how do we resist, and, and I think you've, you started to touch on it already, mm-hmm. but how do we resist being transformed into economic man, yeah. homo economicus? Yeah, because what, what practices are involved? Yeah, what
1: practices? So uh, I think it starts with the Sunday morning sermon. I think we need pastors who are consistently preaching uh, about the dangers of greed. Uh, throughout the Old and New Testaments, there's plenty of passages that talk about the dangers of consumerism. And, and, and so much of both the Old and New Testament narratives are about generosity, about avoiding covetousness, about giving to others, about... Um, uh, the whole year of Jubilee notions, of restart. There's a whole lot of biblical data here. We don't seem to hear enough sermons about it. Um, I think that the Lord's Supper is a, is a, a leveling kind of um, story. Uh, the practice of the Lord's Supper is that rich or poor, uh, uh, white or black, whatever we are, we come to the same table together. There's an equalizing kind of story in the Lord's Supper. I think we need to start, um, uh, I, I, believe in a graduated tithe. So, so um, that as our incomes go so up, we have a higher them, and higher more percentage, more yeah, a higher percentage to, to, to give mm-hmm. to so, so, you know, um, I, 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 don't consider myself to have achieved uh, greatness here, Scott, by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, uh, the Lord has blessed uh, my wife and I with resources and, um, We have just set a cap and just said, we're going to live within this amount. And what we uh, earn above that, the Lord blesses us with. It's going to be given back to the Lord. And, brother, I'm not here. That's right. I'm I'm no martyr. Please don't. I'm not. I'm trying to grow into this. I'm trying to grow in those kinds of practices to develop a greater sense of community and less Um, uh, um, self-centeredness. Some crazy things. So I'm the kind of guy who, when they tell you to recycle, I'm like, why bother? That's dumb. Um, If I I recycle, nobody else does. What good is it going to do? I was with some brothers and sisters in the over in Britain a while back, and I said they were big on recycling. And I was like, this is just a waste of my time. And they looked at me and they said, don't you want to live a faithful life? And I thought, oh, it's not really about the impact. It's just about being faithful. And so now I recycle. And do I think I'm changing the world? Probably not, but I'm changing me. Because every time I take the recycling out, I remember, oh, I'm a steward. I'm a steward of the creation. Um, Sabbath rest. Uh, I'm, uh, uh, my, I'm, I have all kinds of workaholic tendencies in me. And uh, I was challenged by my sister when I was in college. And she said, set aside a day and just stick to it as a matter of faith. And I've done that, and the Lord has blessed that in just crazy ways. But if even if He hadn't, um, just stepping back, what that does for me is restorative, those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, I don't think you've been any less productive. Well, well but it went.
1: <laughs> but I could, if we had more time, the Lord has done miraculous things in my life, uh, things that shouldn't have gone well because I wasn't working that went better than they could have. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, Brian, this has been a really rich mm. conversation. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you, for brother. your good work on this. For your willingness to take a hard look at your discipline mm. from a, from through the lenses of a mm. Christian worldview, uh, and to show us that we, you know, we're we're more than just you know self-centered. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Individualistic, non yeah. individuals. <laughs> um, this is this is so helpful that we, you know, we are body and soul. Yeah. For a reason, yeah. we need community, we need, need each it. other, and the, the idea that we could flourish, uh, I think there there is an economic part to that it's totally. really significant, as you've pointed out. But that's, you know, that's not all there is to it. Uh, and that's it. It yep. sounds like the empirical evidence is showing yeah. that… You know, that you're right on target. It's really been encouraging to see the data support what Scripture is saying. Not that we need
1: that, but it is encouraging to see that happen. Yeah. This guy's just mentioned for our listeners. We have a book called, I've written it with a, a co-author with a, a Trinitarian theologian named Kelly Capick. It's called Becoming Whole. Why the opposite of poverty isn't the American dream. And it captures kind of all we've been talking about here today. So if our readers or listeners are interested, they might learn more there. I think we might have to have a
0: follow-up on that one one at some point. So thanks so much for being with us, Brian. Thanks, brother. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Talbot School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app, and please share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.